Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's been quite a week for news here in Westminster and beyond. If it was obvious to me that these events were contrary to the guidance and the rules, then it must have been equally obvious to dozens of others, including the current prime minister. Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have been in the headlines, and hush now, so has Stormy Daniels. Okay, well here's the uh, the great story I came for. I just spanked Donald Trump with a magazine, and now I'm going to leave. Stormy Horseface Daniels, extortion plot, it's fake news. Closer to home, things are going to get tougher for many of us as the price of a pint goes up. Where's my f-ing change? So let's take a look at some of the stories in the pages of the Belfast Telegraph. First up, from the Belfast Telegraph newsroom, is reporter Curtis Reid with his stories of the week. Curtis, a story you wrote yourself. The PSNI has made over 2,000 referrals to schools in less than two years to alert them of pupils affected by domestic violence. What's this about? Yeah, so it's a really interesting story. So the PSNI released some new figures um, that showed that over 2,000, uh, 2,137 to be specific, were made to police under a designated scheme which is called Operation Encompass. So Operation uh, Encompass involves police sharing information with schools where there has been incidents of domestic violence in presence of a child. Why would they do that? So uh, it, it came about through the Education Authority. So they combined with the PSNI when they realised when a child witnesses something at home like domestic violence, then it can have an effect on their school life. It can have have, have an effect on their day-to-day activities. And teachers might not be always aware of that and think that, you know, that it's just maybe bad behaviour or maybe that the child's just acting out for no reason. So it allows teachers to have more of an understanding of a pupil's home life. And also it's a safeguarding technique as well where police, you know, are aware that maybe a child has an unstable home life and therefore that they can take the steps to ensure that that can be helped or aided in any way within their ability. I suppose I might be quite slightly philosophical about this, but instances of domestic abuse, that does not necessarily mean uh, there's been a trial and a conviction. That means there's been an allegation, etc. Now, I know the child safety comes first and perhaps that's irrelevant, but it does seem you could be, you know, there is a danger there that you're blackening people's names, etc. And obviously no domestic uh, abuse is acceptable at all, but there you don't know exactly what's going on there. It It, it does seem... 
It does seem strange. I've never heard of this before. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, when you when you look at those numbers, I mean, the 2,137 referrals by police. So you have to sort of look at it in the vein of the police have received a report of alleged domestic violence. They've attended the scene and therefore they've made the conscious decision then to report to the school under this Operation Encompass scheme. So you sort of have to take it with a little bit of understanding that the police are only going to make a legitimate f- referral to a school in which they believe a school child or a pupil is in actual not danger, but would they've been in that? They've legitimately been in that environment, and that's all understandable. And obviously, the kids come first. But speaking to teachers, Curtis, some teachers say, "Well, hold on a second here. My job is to teach the kids. I also have to be this kind of a social worker, a community representative. Um, I have to deal with. I mean, I one teacher was telling me the issues that he has to deal with regarding alcohol. I mean, pe- parents turning up." clearly intoxicated and trying to drive a child home. He said, what do you do? Yeah, and I mean, it certainly raises some questions, you know, in regards to the role of teachers. I mean, last month we've seen, you know, multiple strikes in terms of, you know, pay disputes that they had going on. So it does create just more questions in what is actually the role of a teacher. Is a teacher just there to educate or are they supposed to adopt an informal role of being a social worker? Or, you know, are they supposed to take this almost some could argue, unwarranted involvement in a child's life outside of what their actual job's description is. And it all depends on your own. Some people would say yes, uh, and some people would expect that. Some people would say that's the role the teachers have always played for good or for bad in society. Hugely influential people. I was just making the point, of course, that there are teachers out there that say, well, you know, there's an awful lot of responsibility in terms of society uh, placed at the door of teachers and they have an awful lot to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the PSNI said themselves that the Operation Encompass scheme was to demonstrate their ability uh, to show their commitment to tackling and breaking the cycle of domestic abuse. So, you know, it's just something that they're that they're attempting to to do. Let's move on to an entirely different story. If it was obvious to me that these events were contrary to the guidance and the rules, then it must have been equally obvious to dozens of others, including the current Prime Minister. Bojo, Boris Johnson faced the music over Party Gate this week. Did he dance? He certainly didn't dance, but he did uh, perform some moves. There was a lot of pointing and, and finger waving in, in his uh, in his evidence to to the to the privileges committee hearing. And just to remind people what this was about, if you go back to COVID, what we call Party Gate, when when we were all in lockdown, when we weren't going to funerals, when we were wiping down our baked bean cans, we then find out that. They had parties in Downing Street. <laughs> Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. His fictional party was a business meeting, and it was not socially distanced. Yeah, cheese and wine, and there was the infamous cake ambush, uh, and then there was there was lots more as well. I think party gate. You know, I think a lot of people assume that it refers to things like the the cheese and wine incident, but you know, there was there was multiple parties that were that were uncovered and and multiple uh, unauthorized gatherings. You know, and it's important to remember that Boris Johnson, his wife Carrie uh, Johnson, and the now current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak all received fixed penalty notices for their attendance at these gatherings. Let's be honest. Now he was he was brought in front of this committee. He was hauled over the coals. They certainly were also his. Not casting aspersions to any of the politicians involved, but let's just say they don't pay subscriptions to the Boris Johnson fan club. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is the quite interesting thing about the Privileges Committee is that, you know, Boris Johnson made some accusations uh, at the beginning of when he was giving his uh, when he was giving his evidence about the, the chairperson of the committee, which is uh, the leader, uh, the Labour uh, grandee, Harriet Harman. I have the utmost respect for you, the chair, but uh, you've said some things about this matter before reading the evidence, which are plainly uh, and wrongly prejudicial or prejudge the very issue on which you are adjudicating. I'm going to put your earlier remarks down to the general cut and thrust of politics and trust in what you have stressed at the outset, the impartiality that the committee insists upon. Uh, Now, a lot of people have focused on the fact that she is a a Labour member and therefore may be biased against Boris Johnson because she's the opposition. But it's important to remember that when it comes to a privileges committee, it always has to be a member of the opposition that leads it. Uh, But what's interesting about the panel and and what was quite evident in Boris Johnson's approach to his evidence, uh, particularly was with the questions from Bernard Jenkins. So Sir Bernard Jenkins is a veteran Conservative MP, huge Eurosceptic and someone that you would initially think, oh, well, he's automatically going to be on Boris Johnson's side. And that just wasn't the case. He performed his role on the committee to ask Boris Johnson and question on whether or not he liked a parliament. Because I think a lot of people don't realise that this privileges committee isn't about Boris Johnson's parties or these gatherings in Downing Street. It's about whether or not he misled or lied to Parliament. I'm not going to put you in the spot and ask it, did he? Um, but certainly, I mean, what what they call the Westminster Village, what is the general appreciation of his performance on the day, do you think? I mean, you have, you know, more of a, you know, right-leaning newspapers who, you know, I think the the Daily Mail referred to him as, as sneaky like a cat and was able to dodge the questions uh, very uh, cunningly. Uh, but then you have also people that showed, you know, a different side to Boris Johnson. You know, he was very, he's he's normally very cool, calm, collected, and he's sort of known as, you know, the, the man that can make his sort of Latin phrases and he's uh, almost creates the character or the caricature of a, of a lovable buffoon. But I think a lot of people seen a very different side to Boris Johnson when he was giving the evidence. He was very irate. He was very frustrated. You could tell very evidently that he did not want to be there. And I think a lot of people are now seeing what could be the downfall of any future uh, political aspirations. Although, like I said, Boris Johnson has escaped from worse. So uh, it could not be his downfall. He's clearly no fan of Rishi Sunak. He's not, no. Uh, ironically, he had to leave the, the Privileges Committee very briefly to go vote against Rishi Sunak's Windsor Framework deal. Uh, he, he made sure that he was able to do that and then uh, come back and, and resume giving evidence. But no, it's it's very uh, clear that he is not a fan of Rishi Sunak, despite uh, the latter serving as his Chancellor. Well, I will put you on the spot now. I mean, is this the end of Boris as a serious political force in UK politics? Or perhaps we can never say that. You know, Boris Johnson is always going to be an interesting character in politics. I do feel like he's always going to be involved in politics in one way or another. I can't see him sort of fading into the background, nor can I see him taking a Theresa May approach of just being a respectable backbencher and, and you know, chirping in to, during Prime Minister's questions uh, every now and again. But uh, I don't think this will be the downfall of Boris Johnson. I do feel like it has shifted maybe the public opinion slightly. I feel like if this, uh, you know, a few months ago, people seen him as a viable contender to maybe actually retake his throne in number 10. But I think that this is now, it's it's really sort of shifted that idea and it's it's moved the benchmark for him to get back into politics again. Well, talking about shifts in politics and 
shifts in the nature of politics, one Donald Trump. And I'm sure everyone remembers him. He was back in the news this week over Stormy Daniels. Remember her? Why did you have sex with him? I have no idea. Either I was in the right place at the right time or I was the the wrong place at the wrong time. The Wall Street Journal was the first to report on the $130,000 hush money payment to one Stormy Daniels. Mr. Trump has reportedly been offered a chance to testify to the grand jury, which is often considered the last step before an indictment. Four horrible, radical left Democrat investigations of your all-time favorite president, me, is just a continuation of the most disgusting witch hunt in the history of our country. Whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid or, or the stormy horse Daniels extortion plot, they're all sick and it's fake news. Can you tell us exactly what this case, what this potential case is about? So uh, this relates to, uh, you know, former U.S. President Donald Trump. He said on uh, Saturday on his Truth Social platform that he expected to be arrested on Tuesday by New York prosecutors in relation to hush money payment allegedly paid to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Now, the payment came just before he ran for his first run of president in 2016 in exchange for Stormy Daniels' silence about an affair that she had with Donald Trump a decade earlier. Now, what, it's important to remember that the actual charges relate to not the hush money per se. They actually relate to the documenting of the actual money that was paid. As, Todd, as Tucker Carlson, the Fox <laughs> News uh, journalist, said, he said, it's perfectly normal. It's a perfectly normal part of American life and politics that you pay hush money to, you called her an adult uh, actress, most people, and that in vernacular speak, would be a porn star. So a porn star who alleges that you um, had a, a relationship of a sexual nature with her. And this happens, you know, during the time when you're standing for democratic election to the most powerful position uh, on our planet. So even in America, even for Donald Trump, it's probably not a good look. Um, so you he, he, he paid her off. Yeah, so... Um, uh, and there's no doubt about that. No, there's not. Well, uh, you know, M- Mr. Trump has always denied that he had an affair with Miss Daniels, but has never denied actually paying the amount of money to her for her silence. So this is, this potential case... This is a better accounting. It is, yeah. It comes down to, you know, campaign finance, you know, regulation, you know, the being uh, transparent and the open disclosure of, of finances when it comes to a presidential uh, campaign. And he's, he, I mean, he, let's be clear, he's, he's involved in many law cases and many, many ongoing suits and civil cases and controversies. He's, he's fought the law his entire life and he's won. He has. I mean, if he was to be arrested like he uh, predicted on, on his Truth Social platform, he would become the first US president to ever be arrested. Former US president, of, For, of, of but, course. Yeah. And uh, he, could, he could become the first uh, former US president to be charged with a crime uh, and, and, and so on. Perhaps he's also facing a civil rape claim, uh, allegations of Russian connections. No matter what you think of, of uh, Donald Trump or these allegations and, the, and these issues and all of this, 
It's not a great advertisement for democracy, sure it's not. It's not, no. Um, but, you know, there have been critics at the, the Manhattan District Attorney's uh, approach to this investigation. You know, a lot of people say in normal circumstances this would be a misdemeanor and it wouldn't be something that would warrant this level of investigation and that it may just be a case of because of Mr. Trump's political standing and his political beliefs that it just could be, you know, a way in order to arrest him or be able to question him further. So there are critics to this investigation uh, you know, certainly. Everything's political, of course. We of we, course. we understand that. Final question on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. It does seem that he will stand again. Obviously, he's saying he's going to say that everything is part of a political game against him. And when we look at the state of American politics, I mean, they try and blacken each other's name. They it's it's not a decent place. It's not there's no honor involved, and you'll do any dirty trick to your opponents. Do you think he'll stand again? I think he has to stand again. I think he is, uh, you know, he's bigged this up too much. So I, I think truly, you know, he he has to give it a go. You know, you could argue that he has to give it a go because of these impending cases against him. You know, it sort of would provide him with that uh, slight immunity to any charges that he could face, you know, if he was a serious contender for uh, the next presidential election. Uh, I do feel like he has backed himself into a very tight corner where he, he has to run for president again, whether or not he wants to. Is, is something that's not immediately clear. And for the first time, we are starting to see, you know, genuine rivals uh, to, to Donald Trump. I think when he initially ran in that campaign in 2015, there was no f- uh, front runner. Um, outside of him, he was the you know he was the well known name amongst uh, very sort of slightly less well known Republicans who were who were vying for office. This time he's vying against people who are you know they're gaining steam. You have Nikki Haley, uh, who's a very respected Republican uh, and seen as more of a moderate choice, and then you have the likes of Ron DeSantis from Florida, uh, the governor who uh, is proving to be the biggest threat uh, to to Donald Trump's uh, attempts at getting back into the White House under a Republican uh, vote. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Mr. Sa- Mr. Santos and uh, Mr. DeSantis and uh, Donald Trump uh, are, are sort of sparring in, in their words. It's very clear Trump does not like uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, his biggest obstacle uh, into getting that Republican nomination. Curtis Reid, thank you very much. And turning to local politics... Unionism has a decision to make after the Commons overwhelmingly backed the so-called storm and break included in the Windsor Framework deal. That's according to the UUP leader Doug Beattie. The outcome of the vote in the House of Commons was never really in doubt as just 22 Tories joined the DUP in opposing the government's new protocol deal in the end with 515 MPs voting in favour. Belfast Telegraph journalist Liam Tunney has been following the story. Liam, you're welcome to the Bell Tale. Thank you very much. Was this a disappointment for the DUP or, or should they have been expecting this? I think they probably were expecting it, particularly whenever they were in the Commons and MP after MP was getting up to speak in support of it. The DUP are obviously demanding clarification on the, the deal from the PM. It's going to be very difficult for the UK government to go to the EU and say, look, 29 were opposed to this, 515 were in favour. But, you know, we still need you to amend this if that's what the DUP are, are looking it's for. A, it's a very strong hand for Rishi Sunak. And, and he has always been displaying this as that he that he feels like he's moving on. Uh, our political editor, Suzanne Breen, she's written that the Tories want to move on, even if it means leaving the DUP behind. I think that's clear. And it probably became more clear yesterday when, when you watched the debate and and can look to some of the body language of, of Chris Eaton-Harris and the rest of the MPs. 
I mean, when you have a 489 MP majority, that's as clear cut as it comes really in the Commons. What that means then for Stormont is, is another story. I mean, it kind of implications whether the DUP are ready to go back into Stormont at this point seems unlikely. However, I think we are getting closer to the point where the story is moving on. That pressure to come back in will grow ever more intolerable as, as the days go on. And if Rishi Sunak can create that impression that he's moved on and it's up to the DUP and it's totally up to the DUP, that might bring the DUP under pressure. But if, as we have talked about in this podcast, there's a local government election coming. There, there is significant, if not majority, opposition to this framework in the unionist community. So, again, huge decision for Jeffrey Donaldson. But this makes it, I suppose, he can go and say, well, look, such a majority in the Commons voted against us. Well, I think the point you mentioned there about the local election is important because if there's a way, I think, that they can keep this going on till after the local election, they, they will do that because they can still see, still put themselves in the position of saying, we are still opposed to this. You know, we, we've demanded clarification. We want, we're still working on this. I think until the point where you get after the May election and then it becomes maybe, there's a bit less pressure on them after that and there may be some work going on behind the scenes um, in the way politics generally does. And you may find, some, somebody might find a way or a formula of words to say, well, we oppose this, we continue to oppose this, but we'll oppose it within Stormont or we feel this is better. So that could happen. But again, it's hard to say. We can't predict the future, of course. But some people, some commentators seem to think, yeah, eventually they'll come round to finding a fudge or a solution. But certainly a lot of this talk and the body language and the social media accounts do seem very, very negative. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there is. They are still obviously very opposed to it, and they also come under pressure from the likes of Jim Allister and the TUV, and um, other hardline unionism, also assisted by the ERG, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second as well. Well, that's what I wanted to come on to this this powerful grouping, the ERG. The European Research Group, and I don't know what research they were doing because they seem to have made up their minds in the very beginning, but this was the pro-Brexit cadre in the Conservative Party. I would go as far as to say it's almost the, the British Tea Party, a party within a party. And it was a very powerful institution. It doesn't seem as powerful as it, as it has done in recent years. It certainly doesn't. And when you see the numbers, that becomes very stark. I think it does come down to a numbers game, whereas before, under Theresa May, there wasn't as big a majority for the Conservative Party. And you had this powerful group of very big personalities. And it was a similar situation where the DUP were going in as the the so-called kingmakers in Parliament, where you had, they had that influence and they had that numerical, numerical influence, numerical ability to change things. It doesn't seem as strong now, the ERG. I mean, Marc Francois last night almost said as much as that. He said, look, we were we had much more influence when the numbers were in our favour and we don't anymore. I don't think they'll go away. I think they will be there because they will feel that if in a subsequent election the majority isn't as high, they will again have influence to, to try and change things. So I think they'll always be there in some form. It, just their their power and influence will, will go up and down. And I suppose for their point of view as well, they face a very different leader than they had in, in Liz Truss and in Boris Johnson, for example. They face someone with a very managerial style, perhaps someone with not an awful lot of charisma, but someone who clearly has managed to get the job done here. Rishi Sunak doesn't appear to be influenced in the same way as his, his two predecessors were and I think he has the numbers behind him too he's, he's got that majority that he can lean on and say look I appreciate the ERG don't feel this way but again 
like the vote in the Commons, we're, we're moving on. We have democratically decided as a parliament that this is the direction we're going. And time will tell where we move on to. Liam Tunney, thank you very much. And finally, some seriously bad news for many. The price of a pint of Guinness could go up by as much as 40 pence in some Belfast pubs after drinks giant Diageo announced price increases for customers. Our business editor, Margaret Canning, joins me. Margaret, why, why, why? The same reason that the cost of so many things is going up. Diageo's facing the same increasing energy costs and increasing costs of raw materials that all types of businesses have been facing. And they said they've got no choice but to pass that increase on. So that leaves it really up to publicans how much of the cost that is being imposed on them by Diageo. It's up to publicans then how much of that they pass on if they'll add more on top of that. So I spoke to one publican, Pedro Donald, who's familiar to lots of us who work here. One of his pubs is only around the corner from us. He said he would put 10p on to the price of his pint of Guinness in the American. But for others, such as John Bittles of Bittles Bar in the city centre, he says he'll put 30 or 40p onto the price of his pints of Guinness and he thinks most publicans in the city centre will follow suit of in, by in, introducing increases of up to 40% on the price of a pint of Guinness. I mean, it is it is bad news in many ways. One of the things I noticed in a rural area, you know, you know, places where there were pubs in double figures in a village or a small town, yep. etc. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen those going dramatically down, and COVID didn't didn't help that. And now we see during the week that sort of that maybe be only one bar open during the week. It, it, the whole business structure of owning a bar it's, it's become a hobby now. Yeah, it really has changed dramatically because it's no longer making economic sense to be open seven days a week. And I mean, in the same way as restaurants, so many Belfast city centre restaurants are only opening from Thursdays to Saturdays. So that leaves tourists a bit desperate then if they can't find somewhere to eat on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday or very few places are open at least. And it's the same with pubs, especially in rural areas where everybody's lives retreated into the home to an extent during lockdowns and now going out is for special occasions. It might have been routine to go to the pub a few times a week, a few years ago, a decade ago, but now people's habits have changed. But that's not to say people won't push the boat out for maybe First Communion or Confirmation or a wedding anniversary. They certainly will. And the local pub is likely to get that custom. But people's social lives have changed and pubs have suffered as a result. Well, Margaret, the price of a pint is certainly a story we'll return to again because even perhaps the people don't drink the same number of pints they used to, We all notice the amount of change which comes back when we hand over a fiver, but there's many places. Maybe it's where I'm going for a pint that I can wait for change after handing over a fiver, but there's many places I will be waiting a long time. Our business editor, Margaret Hanning, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from 60 Minutes Australia, CBS... 
The New York Post, the BBC and Channel 4. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.